Pro-lifers know that the abortion pill kills an innocent preborn child. But did you know how many mothers taking the abortion pill end up in the ER soon after taking it? Tune in to find out more. Hi folks, my name is Cam. I am the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion so together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. Thanks so much for tuning in again. It's a joy to be with you. Um, and after uh, a number of weeks talking about um, post-abortion um, and the impacts of abortion on men and, and things like that, last week we talked with Dr. Michael Wagner about the history of Canada's pro-life movement. In today's episode, I am really excited to dive into a very heavy topic, but an absolutely vital topic. So today we're talking about the abortion pill and the absolutely bonkers rate at which mothers end up in um, the, the emergency room after taking the abortion pill. It's absolutely bonkers. Um, a recent study coming from and the, the Charlotte Lozier Institute um, details this in depth. And today I'm joined on the show by the two principal authors of that study. Um, first, I'm joined, uh, no, I'm joined with them at the same time, but the first person I'll introduce is Dr. James Studnicki, um, who is the Vice President of Data Analytics for the Lozier Institute. Um, Holy cow, Dr. Studnicki has has done it all. It seems like he's been in upper levels of health services and research for over 50 years. Um, he has worked at John Hopkins University, University of South Florida, University of North Carolina. Um, amongst others, he has done a tremendous amount of research into um, medicine, health practices, all that kind of stuff. And along with him, I'm joined by Tessa Longbonds, who is a senior research associate, again, with the Charlotte Lozier Institute. And the two of them joined me to talk about uh, the landmark study that they used, um, that they developed, that drew not from voluntary um, reporting, which can be not only massively skewed, um, but also not necessarily representative of population for a variety of reasons, they dove into something pretty incredible to find much more accurate information. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Studnicki and Tessa Longbombs. All right, Dr. Studnicki and Tessa, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join the Pro-Life Guys podcast. How are the two of you doing? Just great. Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having us on. Yes, my pleasure. I, I am really excited to dive into this topic today, talking about the concerns, the medical concerns for mothers surrounding abortion pill and, and the alarmingly high rate of emergency room visits that, that the two of you are experts in. Before we dive into that, I'd love to get a little bit of background, I suppose, on the two of you. And Dr. Studnicki, I'm, I'm going to throw this to you first. So I, I read your introduction, uh, read your bio in the introduction. I feel like it, it would be shorter to list the prestigious institutes that you haven't been affiliated with rather than the ones that you have been. <laughs> I'm curious, through your experience working in academia with so many incredible institutions, John Hopkins and countless others, has life issues, have, has that always been a, a priority for you with regards to the research and awareness that you're doing? Or, or when did this really come to the forefront as um, a, a necessary area of focus for you? Actually, quite the contrary. I was toward the end of my career. I spent 40 plus years in academics and toward the end of my career, I had a doctoral student who was interested in issues that surrounded abortion. 
And it was only at that point in time that I realized that how difficult a, it was to get any decent data, any valid data that was useful for purposes of real research. And I also came to realize that there's a tremendous bias in academia and associated organizations of academia, uh, for example, the peer-reviewed journals, they're, they're virulently overall uh, pro-abortion. I came to realize that just about the time I was retiring. I'd written a paper on, on the conduct of science and abortion and how far we have to go before we can do good abortion studies. And it came to the attention of Dr. Dr. David Prentice and, and Chuck Donovan at Charlotte Lozier we got to talking, and as a result of that interchange, uh, I joined uh, CLI about five years ago. It's been actually a magnificent opportunity for me, a, a gift, been, uh, for, from a research perspective, the most fulfilling uh, five years of my career. Fantastic. Well, it, it's been illuminating for, for everyone who's already familiar with the Charlotte Lausier Institute. And for those in the audience who aren't, I, I strongly encourage diving into the, the tremendous wealth of resources that are there. Tess, I want to throw it to you as well with regards to your background and passion. Um, there, there are some, it, it's interesting, the applications that come across my desk for participation with pro-life outreach and the number of people who tell me that they have zero interest in standing behind a desk or sitting behind a desk at all. I can only imagine the, the countless hours of research that go into being a senior researcher with the, the Charlotte Lausier Institute. Where, where has your passion come from with regards to not only the research, but also life issues in general as well? Yes. So I have always been pro-life. That's something that's been always been very important to me. And I knew that I wanted to do something that involved my values, but I didn't know what that would look like, and I did not expect to end up working full-time for a pro-life research organization. In fact, I didn't know that pro-life research organizations existed, <laughs> but it was, it was through an internship at another think tank here in Washington, D.C., that I first found out about the work of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and I was immediately drawn to everything that Charlotte Lozier was doing and just thought it was so fascinating that here was this group of really smart people who were working so hard to do the research that no one else was doing and to provide all of these resources to the rest of the pro-life movement. And so uh, I wanted to get involved and ended up joining Charlotte Lozier around the same time as Dr. Stanicki did, actually. And I've been here ever since. And it's just been a really great place to, to learn. And from Dr. Stanicki and all of the other experts that we have uh, who, who lend us their expertise and their knowledge and just been very cool to be a part of everything that the Institute has done. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for, for all of your, your wisdom and insight that, that I'm sure that we're not only going to get into in this episode, but everything that you've been doing over the last number of years with the, the Lozier Institute. Um, let, let's dive into the topic at hand, the, the question of abortion pill and emergency room visits. And Tessa, I was wondering if you could start us off with a bit of a landscape with abortion trends in general, including abortion pill trends over the last, say, two decades or so. I know that with the FDA first, I believe, approving the abortion pill in 2001, it's been a fascinating and, and obviously horrifying. I, I, I appreciate the work that you guys do in, in diving into the basically the death toll um, related to preborn children, mothers and fathers, and all those related to it. 
But Tessa, could you give us a bit of a background on kind of abortion trends in general in America over the last two decades and where the abortion pill in general fits into that before we dive into the, the landmark study that the two of you worked so hard on? Yes. So like you said, the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S., approved mifepristone, which is that that first pill in the two-part chemical abortion process, what we call the, the abortion pill, back in 2000. And when they approved it, they put restrictions in place because they understood that it was a dangerous drug. And those got turned into what's been called a risk and evaluation, mitiga- risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, or a REMS. And in the decades since then, the the two plus decades since the FDA approved mifepristone, chemical abortions have increased in the U.S. from virtually zero to now over half, um, probably approaching two thirds of all abortions. And along with that, that rapid increase has come the FDA slowly winding back many of the protections that it initially put in place on the abortion pill, making it more widespread, more accessible, and more dangerous. And actually, we've seen kind of the same pattern in Canada, um, maybe in a more tightened timeline, but from approval a few years ago, uh, from a small percentage of all abortions to now a sizable, substantial percentage of all abortions in Canada, and those restrictions rapidly being lifted to allow increased access to the abortion pill. So kind of those mirroring trends going on in both the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about even close to home. So I grew up in Victoria, British Columbia, which is just kind of northwest of, of Seattle, Washington kind of thing. And actually the only independent abortion facility in Victoria closed um, two years ago because of um, how many abortions were now being performed through this um, abortion pill. And so it was such a conflict for the the pro-lifers who had done 40 Days for Life outside of the abortion facility there for so many years that they knew that they couldn't full out and celebrate the closing of the clinic, but a, a very complicated mess. But let's dive into um, the the landmark study. And, and Dr. Stidnick, I'd love to throw it your direction because you alluded to it earlier about how the reporting, the researching was ultimately entirely flawed up until this research that you guys had done through uh, Medicaid applications and and process. And I was wondering if you could crack that open a little bit further to talk about the problems that have been ongoing with abortion reporting and and the moving goalposts so often with regards to um, the FDA and their counts of of um, adverse effects after the abortion pill and abortions and and the problem and how this study sought to address that problem. Well, of course, the mantra of the FDA from the very beginning in many respects has been that chemical abortion is safe. It's it's a drumbeat over and over again. And 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 actually what they did, for example, in 2016, they eliminated the the requirement to report any complications that except for fatalities. So that the only thing after that point that they considered to be a complication of chemical abortion was if there was evidence, A, that a woman had an induced abortion, uh, chemical induced abortion, and B, subsequently that she died as as a result of it. Well, obviously, this, this goes right to the heart of the data problems. We don't have in this country 
a system, uh, in fact, most countries don't, a system that surely identifies, we don't know incidents perfectly. We don't know when every induced abortion occurs. Typically, we get report, we get secondhand reports from the, from the states. And it's very, very difficult because of that to determine what the adverse outcomes might be from any given abortion. So A, not only do we get as some of the Scandinavian countries do, they have a registry so that when a woman has a, has a pregnancy outcome, including an induced abortion, it's recorded, it's certified. Uh, we don't have anything like that. And so subsequently, we have a set of circumstances in which we just don't know when they occur. And we cannot possibly uh, be able to uh, determine, therefore, the range of adverse outcomes that occur or the incidence of adverse outcomes that occur. What we started, what we noticed uh, a few years ago when looking at some of our state-level emergency room visit data is we saw, and we looked first at Florida data, we looked at a climbing and rapidly increasing number of visits to the emergency room for women who were there for reasons that were related in some way to a termination of pregnancy, whether it was a miscarriage, an induced abortion, whatever. And we wondered why we looked at that and we thought, gee, that's strange. Wonder why no one has noticed it. It was very large and it was a fairly rapid increase. In that data, we couldn't tell the difference between an induced abort, a chemical abortion and a surgical abortion. So around that time, <clears throat> we started to think about gaining access to the Medicaid data, which we did about two and a half to three years ago, which has enabled us to do things that other investigators are reluctant to do for a lot of reasons. That data is valuable because it gives us information on confirmed pregnancy outcome events. We know exactly what happened. And because this is a claims-based data system, in other words, everything that Medicaid pays for, as long as these women are subsequently eligible, we can track it, whether it's an emergency room visit, a prescription, a hospitalization, if Medicaid pays for it, we know it happened. So we have, we have data where we can identify. Now, this, the downside of that is these are poor women. These, these women qualify for Medicaid by virtue of their financial status, but it represents an incredible, incredible opportunity for us to actually take a look at a, an, an outcome-based group of women that we can follow. And it just so happens that we had data available from 1999 through 2015. So it actually coincided with the approval of the chemical abortion in the year 2000. And so we were able then not only to capture a longitudinal look at women who had both chemical and surgical abortions and their emergency room use, but we were able to follow the growth, as, as Tessa has already mentioned, the growth of, of the proportion of chemical abortions, of total abortions during that period of time. So that was the setup. That was the background for why we decided to do the emergency room uh, study itself. I can talk a little bit more detail about the study if you want me to. Is this time or do you want to? That would be great if we can dive into this. I think that gives us a great okay. overview about the value of it and, and the parameters. And so let's dive into some of the outcomes that you saw and, and how you processed and, and analyzed the data, I suppose, and, and the outcomes from that. Yeah, we looked at essentially what we did is we looked at all of the induced abortions uh, among Medicaid women in the 17 states that pay for abortion services. 
And we came up with a grand total of 423,000 induced abortions. About three quarters of them were surgical because during that period of time, the chemical portion was growing. And then we identified every one of those women who had one or more emergency room visits within 30 days of the induced abortion. And we discovered some things that I think are rather remarkable. First of all, we discovered that by the year 2015, about more than a third, and this is true for all women who have induced abortions, whether they're chemical or surgical, more than a third of those women have an emergency room visit for some reason. They're not all abortion related, but women who are having abortions as of 2015 in the United States, which is the latest Medicaid data that we have available to us, one out of every three was ending up in the emergency room. Then we, then we looked at the two other kinds of emergency room visits or subsets of all visits. One, those that are specifically pregnancy-related pregnancy emergency room visits so that the visit was for something that was pregnancy-related, hemorrhaging, infection, etc. And then we also looked at a third category of emergency room visits, a very interesting one, and that is those that end up being miscoded in the emergency room. The emergency room physician identifies this woman as having had a miscarriage, even though we know from the data set that she had a chemical abortion. So we call those miscodes. And we tracked these three categories of abortion visits for the period between 1999 and 2015. And Lo and behold, we found that the overall, the, uh, for abortion-related, the, the, um, the, the much more li- the chemical abortion is about two and a half times more likely to have an emergency room visit than a surgical abortion. And for miscodes, for those that are miscoded as miscarriages, those women are about four times as likely to have an emergency room visit if they had a chemically-induced abortion than if they had a surgically induced abortion. The rate of increase in the abortion related, it's an interesting figure, the rate of increase in abortion related emergency room visits between 2002, when we actually got our very first first, uh, actual chemical abortions in the data set to 2015, the increase was over 500%, was a 507% increase. So it's a remarkable, and, and why the FDA wouldn't be at least curious, A, about why women who are having abortions are ending up in the emergency room at such a high rate, and then B, why women who are having chemical abortions are much, much more likely to have a uh, abortion-related emergency room visit, and what we think a very important policy problem, a miscoded, uh, uh, a miscoded emergency room visit. Yeah, certainly disturbing on so many levels, not only at at the highest of levels about the lobbying on the FDA and that sort of thing, but but as you mentioned at the end there about the miscoding and whatnot of how this isn't necessarily just a a few ideologues at the top of the FDA who are ramming this through, rather, this is a whether it's a systemic problem or, or just something that, that demands greater insight and, and checks and balances or, or prevention, whatever it may be, um, incredibly alarming. And Tessa, I want to throw it to you because as Dr. Studnicki mentioned, um, certainly there's been studies and there's data from other nations as well. I'm curious from your research, did you find that 
I mean, th this is alarming, regardless of whether um, it's only America or a global trend sort of thing. But as you compare these trends with whether it's Finland and Sweden or other nations, were you finding that it was um, a, a bit of an outlier for these statistics in America? Is this a matter of somehow, quote unquote, Americans still learning how to use the abortion pill? And we would anticipate that this rate is going to drop off the more mainstream this becomes? Or is this continuing alarming because this is consistent with other data points and that we're really not, there's no reason to think that this is going to change. Well, sadly, no, we are not an outlier in the United States. This is something we've seen wherever there's good data or that wherever there are good studies on abortion and complications from abortion, there is this consistent pattern of chemical abortions leading to more complications than surgical abortions more emergency room visits. Dr. Sidnicki mentioned the research that's come out of Scandinavia. There was one study out, out of Finland that found that the complication rate from chemical abortions was four times that of surgical abortions. Um, as many as one in 20 women experiencing some sort of complication uh, or uh, needing to have their abortion completed. Um, and then in fact, there was a uh, paper that was recently published looking at Canadian data and they found this same pattern. Chemical abortions had about twice the complication rate of surgical abortions and a much higher rate of emergency room visits. And so I think everywhere we look, everywhere we have good data, we're seeing that chemical abortions are much more dangerous. And unfortunately, this is something that we would only expect to get worse uh, with in so many places, these pills becoming more widespread with less medical oversight, being used later in pregnancy when we know they're less effective and more dangerous. And so I think it's something sadly that is just going to continue um, and we're going to see this more and more. Gotcha. That, it, it's incredibly saddening, but but unfortunately not terribly surprising and, and alarming that there has been more pushback um, for the FDA for other um, powers that may be that that can bring about a change to this. And and I'm curious with regards to, I mean, we, we've covered on the program before, and I'll drop in the show notes uh, a number of things, including the articles that we were referencing here, as well as the conversation that we've had with um, Alison Santafonte regarding the abortion pill and how it works and that kind of thing. And I, I suppose I would wonder, and I'll throw it up to, to either of you or, or both of you, I suppose, to con um, comment on a fruit from the research that, that certainly it's been alarming with um, the, the COVID pandemic and the emergency response from President Biden in his response to, to mainstream or opening the door for mail out um, abortion pill. Obviously, I, I think that that is probably a major contributor to so many of these ER room visits that um, we've got people who are administering to themselves, not knowing the exact age of their child, not knowing um, safe um, parameters for for use of abortion pill and and obviously this, this goes without saying obviously the entire conversation goes without saying that that every abortion is unsafe in that it directly and intentionally kills an innocent preborn child obviously that goes without saying but i'm curious with regards to how um whether it's the the Lozier institute whether it's other entities how are we leveraging this data and what has the response been to the study with how people are processing this information and is it generating any kind of a, a massive response at a government level at an fda level um, maybe dr stednicki i'll throw it to you first regarding the response to to the outcomes of this research and whether there's more research required before action can happen or or what do you see the the next natural step being with the response that there has been 
Unfortunately, from the perspective of the regulators, and I'm speaking specifically now about the FDA and to, to a lesser extent, the CDC, which is responsible for the data, I, I see intransigence rather than a willingness to take a fresher look uh, at these issues. I think what they see is the demedicalization of abortion be, because of chemical abortion. And for them, demedicalization means you, are, you remove uh, this procedure further and further from the oversight of a physician. You remove it further and further from the likelihood of, of any means by which to track it or to report it. And I believe, and if you look back at some of the originators of, they called it the chemical abortion cocktail in the, in the late 90s, the people who were working on this, they saw this, they envisioned this future. They, they called it empowering women through demedicalization. They recognized that there, as long as it was considered to be a, quote, medical or therapeutic procedure that it would have to be bound by some reasonable medical standards of monitoring and quality and safety. But I think the chemical abortion pills giving them the opportunity uh, to sidestep science, actually, to size to sidestep monitoring. Uh, the positive side, I think, is that there are more investigators now who are starting to look at this issue. Tessa mentioned the Canadian study. I think that was in the Annals of Internal Medicine, which is a very influential journal. And actually, our paper was cited. Our paper was cited in that. Uh, that wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago. They stayed away, completely ignored our stuff. They stayed away from our stuff. So our, for us, it means we've got to work harder. We've got to do more and better research. We've got to keep getting these things, these findings into the into the best peer-reviewed journals that we can, and we're going to have to de depend at some point in time on a media that suddenly becomes a little bit more balanced in their perspective. We have a very biased media. Our, our media outlets are largely pro-abortion in their ideological posture. Uh, and we fight against that every day, but I think well, we're gonna, we're just gonna keep, we're just gonna keep pounding on the rock, basically. That makes sense, and I. It's encouraging that there are a few. At this point, it may be "quote unquote" fringe news carriers that might be carrying more and more of this information. But as people are more and more, whether it's interested or or personally impacted by this, you, you'd have to think that this information would get further disseminated. Tessa, I'm I'm curious, and I, I know that as a as a researcher, you might be a little bit hesitant to offer forecasting and anticipation. But with your you with your research of the international community and whatnot. I, I don't know if if America would necessarily be on the leading edge. And so we don't have anyone to look to for what the next step is, it, uh, how much worse this is going to get or, or any kind of political or um, kind of FDA equivalent regulations, I suppose. But I, I mean, we're often forecasting in Canada, looking at especially the, the rise of euthanasia in Canada, what has happened? What's the next step? How do we how do we prepare for the next step kind of thing? With what your research has shown from um, similar incidents um, internationally and that kind of thing, 
are there key steps that, that we're either try, we're needing to make so that we can follow back the pendulum route back towards the center like other countries? Is it a matter of this pendulum is going to swing further in this direction um, if we're going to be anything like a Western European country? What, what do you anticipate coming down the tube as it pertains to abortion pills? Is it just going to be head in the sand? Let's ignore the international community altogether. What, what does the slippery slope look like for us? Well, I think certainly in the United States, we can look to the example of other countries that have been following this similar trajectory, following similar steps as far as the abortion pill um, and making it more accessible, removing regulations that were put into place for safety reasons. I know during the, uh, the early days of the pandemic, there were a few studies out of the United Kingdom because they, they adopted pills by post um, their version of abortion by mail earlier than we did. And uh, some independent investigators there did note an increase in emergency room visits, um, women going to the hospital, and even their very own health authority there was concerned. And there were these awful stories coming to light of women taking these drugs way too late in pregnancy, um, reports that potentially babies could have born, been born alive, women's lives put at risk. And so I think they, their authorities there were very hesitant to make it permanent, but then they did come under a lot of pressure to, to make that step permanent and to, to continue to allow pills by post. And so they did decide to do that, but just some of the investigations that happened there and also on the, uh, the issue of coercion, because once these pills are made available in the mail, uh, available for order online, so many of the normal opportunities for screening and opportunities for a woman to have a conversation with her healthcare provider are gone. And so um, they, there was a secret shopper experiment and they were able to call in and women who could have been pressured by a partner were able to obtain abortion pills. And so sadly, I think that's going to be something that we're going to see more and more of in North America as well. Um, here in the U.S., I mean, there was already a report that was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, a case report of a woman with an ectopic pregnancy who obtained the abortion pill online and then took it and started to experience uh, symptoms of the ectopic pregnancy, went to the emergency room. They thought it was related to the abortion. They didn't diagnose it. And it wasn't until later that she went back and they finally figured out that it was an ectopic pregnancy and were able to treat her. And so, of course, the abortion pill is not going to treat the ectopic pregnancy. It's just going to mask the symptoms until the pregnancy could potentially rupture and the woman could die. It's one of the leading causes of maternal mortality. And so I think we're just going to see more and more examples of all of these things that happen when that medical oversight is gone, whether that be coercion, women experiencing complications, um, abortions happen. Of course, we don't want any woman to undergo an abortion, but women who are undergoing abortions due to pressure and lack of other alternatives. And so that's why I'm just so, so scared to see the FDA removing again yet another layer of protection and uh, just allowing these pills to go into very dangerous situations where we don't even know where they're going or who ultimately is taking them. So kind of the Wild West in a way. 
Yeah. And and as as I had the conversation with Alison Setafonte of, of not only the coercion, I mean, we talked about um, boyfriends, husbands, whomever purchasing these pills on behalf of, of the parents of the mother of their child and slipping to them as though they were Tylenol or into their food or, or like, like it's horrifying um, what this, as you uh, very, very aptly said, the Wild West of the abortion pill in America and in, in other places around the world. It's absolutely horrifying. And I mean, I'm sure it's probably a better question to Jamie, who who facilitated this conversation, who's the communications director at um, the Lozier Institute, about um, going through both uh, the academic journals as well as social media and all these other places where, where the, the young moms who unfortunately are the collateral damage of this culture war um, are, are taking in this information. Um, it, it's appalling how... The, yeah, the, the information battle is, will be raging on it and hopefully raging on it. I, I can only hope that, that this information will cause somebody, at, at whether it's a state level or at an administrative level or whatever it may be, um, to, to hit pause on this progression. Um, Dr. Studnicki, as we start to wind down here, you, you mentioned the fact that, that the data that we have available at this point is only up until 2015, and that's the most recent Medicaid data. I'm, I'm curious about... I, I'm sure that there's further research going forward. I, I hope and pray that there will be um, a ton of research coming out of the the pill by post or abortion pills by mail kind of thing of, of the impact and the, the frequency, tragically, of emergency room visits. What's coming down the tube with regards to wh whether it's the two of you guys working on that research in particular or other research happening at the Lozier Institute regarding um, information around the abortion pill through COVID-19 um, in the last seven years? Is that just waiting on, on Medicaid to release that data or is there, are there projects mm -hmm. in the works that um, might shine an even greater spotlight on this tragedy that's unfolding? There are a couple more years of, of Medicaid data that are will be available. I think they have now available through partial 2018. We'll be adding those to our database as soon as we renew our data use agreement in the coming year with uh, CMS. But you bring, but you, what you raise is really the uh, point. I have said over and over again that one of the disastrous, disastrous, the disastrous consequence of chemical abortion is that it represents an existential threat to abortion research. We are moving in a direction for a time when we will literally not be able to tell you, tell how many women in this country are having abortions, nor being able to determine whether or not they have or have not had any adverse consequences, and if so, how they were treated. So not only do we need good data to do good science, but we also need good data to do good medical care, as Tessa pointed out. If physicians in the emergency room or in any other uh, circumstance don't have the information about a woman's uh, um, abortion, about a woman's chemical abortion, they can't provide, they, it's impossible for them to provide the, the uh, timely and appropriate medical care that in fact could, could be life-saving. So uh, our, our hope, and, I'm, and I think the only, actually the only hope to be able to maintain and to improve abortion science in this country is if we move to some sort of a formalized registry requirement where uh, pregnancy outcomes, specifically in this case, abortion, uh, are, are it, that it's mandated that they be reported and that those uh, certificates of uh, the pregnancy outcome be linkable 
to other data sources like the Scandinavian countries do. So in the Scandinavian countries, they can link an abortion registry, for example, to death certificates. So they know when a woman who has had an abortion dies. They link the uh, they link the abortion certificate to health services utilization. So when a woman has who has had an abortion goes to the emergency room, or uh, and and tries to commit suicide, or if she goes to a hospital for some other comorbid condition that may be related to the abortion, they can make the connection. So they can continue to do not only again. Good research. Remember, it's not just research. Everybody says, oh, you number crunchers, you don't need the data anyway. But that's the same research that ends up as evidence-based medical practice. That's the way, that's the way it, medicine advances its practice, develops more effective and efficient means of therapies for women or for anyone. So without good science, without the data for underlying science, not only do you eliminate the science, you deteriorate the quality of medical practice that's available. That's happening in this country in real time today at an alarming rate, and it should be on the it should be on the front pages of every newspaper in the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more, um, Tessa. I'll throw you a bit of a. A bit of a curveball. I, I don't know if it's a curveball, but hopefully it's not. Um, that that I think dovetails with that. That I mean, I the way my brain works when I, I'm doing pro life outreach, I, I think by way of analogy. I uh, so often I'm, I'm making analogies between similar things that people can grasp a little bit more. Um, Doctor Studnicki, you, you paint a, a horrifying picture that I think so many in the culture obviously are so willing to sweep under the rug because of the personal interest at stake. Tessa, when you're talking about this, uh, whether in press releases, whether in um, the, the research, or even just in the conversations that you're having um, in, in your day-to-day -day life, I suppose, do, do you think by way of analogy, do you think of, of whether it's comparisons with the um, tobacco um, situation in the, in the 80s and 90s, do, do you think of how this compares? I mean, if... Presumably, if a quarter of people receiving any other medical treatment were ending up back in the ER within a month afterwards, um, th there would be some major questions being asked. Are there analogies, are, are there comparisons that you will often make when you're talking about this and presenting it? Or, or what, what is your general route to, to convey just how alarming this ought to be for people that um, this idea of, of two out of three ain't bad um, doesn't really fit when it comes to people ending up back in the emergency room? Exactly. And like you said, uh, the tobacco industry and a lot of the research that was done on the safety of tobacco uh, is really probably the best example that we have of what's been going on with abortion research. And actually, Dr. Stanicki has done a lot of digging into the studies that were done that were funded by the tobacco industry, claiming that, that uh, smoking was safe, when obviously, as we now all know, it wasn't. And so I think we've seen something very similar happening with abortion. Uh, the abortion industry does not want data out there showing that abortion is dangerous. They do not want women to know that this could be putting them at risk. But then I think that there's another layer too in that women feel silenced. Um, we've done other research here at the Charlotte Lozier Institute looking at what women are saying about their experiences with chemical abortion how they're talking about it online. And so many women report feeling silenced 
by their experience, unable to share about it. Uh, they were unprepared for what they underwent and then are just having a hard time handling it after it happened. And so I think there are so many women who have been harmed by chemical abortion, but haven't had the opportunity to, to talk about what happened to them and what they went through. And so I think that's another important element to this too, is paving the way and enabling women to start sharing more about what they have experienced and uh, the fact that there is such an, a high level of pain and bleeding associated with this. There was a study recently that almost 40% of women reported severe pain undergoing chemical abortion. Well, that's not what Planned Parenthood will tell you, but that is what women are beginning to share with each other as they're talking about the abortion pill and what it's like to undergo a chemical abortion. And so I think as we continue to publish research showing that no chemical abortion actually is not safe, it's certainly not safe for the baby, and it's also not safe for the mom, and hopefully provide more of this opportunity for women to say, well, actually, that happened to me. I was the one who underwent that incomplete chemical abortion and had to have it completed surgically. I was the one who had the infection. I had the hemorrhage. Um, then we'll see more and more of these stories start to come out and women feel able to share more about what happened. That'll be a, an absolutely vital um, next step, like, like you mentioned, for the pro-life movement, who, who have done very well over the last decade, I would argue, in coupling the data points with the, the testimonies and witnesses of so many people. Um, it, it is absolutely absurd how powerful um, the abortion lobby is in America and around the world. I mean, so often they, they talk about, I mean, up here in, uh, in Alberta, where I'm living, um, they, they talk about the, the oil and gas industry, about how they, they have ev so much influence and so much power, and, and yet we haven't gotten any pipelines through or anything like that. But I, I won't get into that sort of thing. But, but it's amazing when you compare that with the abortion lobby. And, and just how much pressure they're applying to silence the data, to silence the stories, to silence everything, all of the negative repercussions that, that come around abortion, abortion pills, um, abortions in any form, and the impact on, on parents as well. And so, um, Dr. Stimnicki, I'll throw it to you for, for the final word um, on, on the research entirely and, and where we're going right now. Yeah, I wanted to just, I wanted to just comment on Tesco's test as usual, brings it all together. Uh, she mentioned... Uh, she mentioned the tobacco industry. And what I want everybody to understand is the tobacco industry undermined and controlled the science of the relationship between smoking and heart disease and respiratory illness. So much so that it was 55 years from the first peer reviewed publication that connected cigarette smoking to lung cancer before the FDA recognized it as a danger. The, 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 the tobacco industry was able to control the science for half of a century in the United States. That's what we're, that's what we're up against. And, it, and, and if we miss this opportunity now because of the impact of chemical abortion on our lack of information, the circumstances will be even worse. So good to remember that. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And and that's why I find it so powerful as well in, in closing here to, to tie the two together, because so often, I mean, it's a natural comparison. And, and with um, tobacco consumption and the impact that it has on the individual, obviously, when we're talking about abortion, this so often has more to do with the equivalent of secondhand smoking kind of thing, where we're making decisions that is dramatically um, vitally and mortally impacting the lives of other people while also impacting um, the, the mothers who are choosing it as well. So it's almost the inverse of the tobacco problem where the primary victim is right. the secondhand party and, and but demonstrating as well the profound and alarming impact as the two of you have um, and, and together with the rest of your research team, I want to give them shout outs too. I know there's a number of other people who were um, very, very important contributors towards the, the landmark study again, which will be linked in the show notes below. Um, just how important it is for this data to get shared far and wide, not only for the the lobbying and counter lobbying at legislative levels, but also as both of you have mentioned, at the human level, at the at the level of people who may be considering the abortion pill as a solution to the challenges that that they're facing. Um, I I thank the two of you so so much and all of you um, at the Lozier Institute for all of your incredible and diligent work on this area. I would love to continue connecting on, on of the many other areas of focus that you guys um, have covered. So thank you both so, so much for taking the time to join me on the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's been great to be on. All right, folks, that's my conversation with two incredible reps from the Charlotte Lozier Institute, um, Dr. James Didnicki and uh, Tessa Longbonds. Thank the two of them so, so much for joining um, the program. I, I hope that you found that as informative as I did. I know that we've covered the abortion pill on the program before. I'll drop links um, below, not only to our initial episode that we did with Alison Santafonte, then um, one of the, the main folks at Live Action. I know that she's not with Live Action anymore, um, but still doing incredible pro-life work. So the, the initial episode with her, and then I want to say the second one was with Dr. James Harrison, I believe as well, the, the developer of the abortion pill reversal procedure. And so incredibly important information there too. But I think that this is important, especially as the abortion pill, as we talked about, is relied upon more and more frequently, right? That, that people think that this is something that is making abortion, quote unquote, more hygienic, more accessible, more worry-free, all these absurd ideas when the fact is that an, an alarming, in anybody's eyes, you don't have to be pro-life to think that it's alarming to have that volume of uh, mothers ending up in the emergency room that soon after the abortion pill. And so um, I, I hope that you have found this informative. If you have any questions, if you have any um, ideas and other episodes, other guests that you'd like to have featured, please don't hesitate to um, hit me up, email at prolifeguys.com. Um, I'll drop that in the show notes as well. Thanks a ton for tuning in, and I hope that you have a great rest of your day, however many hours are left, wherever you're at. May God bless you abundantly. Mm.